Welcome back to the Oxford Comment. I'm Lauren. I'm Michelle. And this is a quick cast about, yes, Osama bin Laden. Now first I'm going to throw out another name, and it's Michael Scheuer. I think you should Google him. His last name is spelled S-C-H-E-U-E-R. What you're going to see come up are hits from almost every major media outlet. For instance, he was just featured on the front page of the New York Times and did an interview on the Colbert Report. He's just published a biography called Osama bin Laden, and he makes a pretty controversial argument, I think, which is to say that we don't fully understand who Osama bin Laden is because politicians on both sides haven't been forthcoming with information and that the average American doesn't have an accurate portrait of the man in their heads. Now, Michael Scheuer himself is a pretty interesting guy. He was chief of the CIA's bin Laden unit, a counterterrorism analyst. You know, he's kind of done it all. Um, and Michelle, you actually had a chance to talk with him. What was that like? To be honest with you, Lauren, I was nervous at first. I've never knowingly spoken with someone in the CIA, but he was very warm, professional, and amenable to answering all my questions. Um, but I'll let the interview speak for itself. Well, I'm super excited to hear it. I heard that when your last book came out, Imperial Hubris, that Osama bin Laden actually was quoted as saying, if you want to understand what's going on, and if you would like to get to know some of the reasons for your losing war against us, then read the book of Michael Scheuer. Yes, uh, uh, Mr. bin Laden said that in 2007, and you'd be surprised how few friends that won me. But I don't take it as a compliment. I, I, I take it as, uh, I believe he himself is extraordinarily frustrated in that we have not read what he's told us. We have not, uh, for example, had an enemy since Vietnam, since Ho Chi Minh and General Giap, who has been so eager for us to know what he's mad at, what he's going to do about it, and how he plans to proceed. And so when, uh, when bin Laden mentioned my work, he was simply saying, here's one of these goofy Westerners who really did listen to what the enemy said and portrayed it accurately. And I think that's the least we owe to the American people is they understand what motivates their enemy. What have we been hearing and what is the truth? Well, they, uh, throughout this period since 1996 when bin Laden declared war on the United States, Americans have been told by their presidents that they hate women in the workplace, the, the, the Muslims, that they hate freedom, that they hate elections, they hate liberty, they hate beer after work. And what I tried to do in the book is to use the corpus of bin Laden's writings, uh, which are about 850 pages, to demonstrate that none of those cultural things are ever mentioned by our enemies. Those are purely um, constructions of uh, U.S. politicians, British politicians, Western politicians, in that uh, we have, we're in essence fighting an enemy that doesn't exist. We're fighting an enemy who uh, is supposed to oppose my daughter's going to university, for example, when we're really fighting an enemy who is motivated by what the U.S. government does in the Muslim world, not by how Americans live or how they think. Um, can you kind of lay it out for us? What do we need to understand about his motivations? I think very basically that, that in, the, in the phrase, they hate us uh, for what we do and not who we are or how we think, is, is the key to understanding what this enemy is about. Bin Laden declared war on us in August of 1996 and identified six issues which he thought amounted to an American war on Islam. They were uh, the ability to keep, uh, at least until recently, oil prices at below market level, 
uh, our unqualified support for Israel, our presence on the Arabian Peninsula, our support for other countries who are deemed to oppress Muslims, especially China, India, and Russia, our military presence in uh, other Muslim countries, and sixth, and probably most damaging, our 50-year uh, support for tyrannical Arab governments, uh, whether it is Mr. Mubarak or the Saudi family. Those are the issues that are at play here. And, and if we were fighting an enemy who was motivated by a hatred for women in the workplace, there wouldn't even be a threat there. There would maybe a lethal nuisance, but uh, Muslims are not going to blow themselves up because my daughters are in university. Obviously, they will blow themselves up in great numbers when we occupy Iraq, when we uh, support the Israelis, when we support the Saudi police state. So uh, it's, a key, it's a key point. And I I'm afraid that we're 15 years into this war and the real fight really hasn't started. And I don't think a lot of people really knew much about him until 9-11. Is that true? I think that's right. The media didn't do a very good job in covering him, even though he attacked us in Saudi Arabia twice in 1995 and 96. He attacked our soldiers in Somalia in, in, in 1994, blew up two of our embassies in 1998, and almost sunk the U.S. destroyer coal in 2000. Uh, neither the media nor the politicians in either party took any time at all to try to educate about Americans about the threat they were going to face. So. Um, although it seemed to spring brand new after 9-11, actually um, it had been going on for at least six years before that. And in indeed, bin Laden wasn't sure we heard him the first time, so he redeclared war in 1998. You write that 9-11 was his way of getting us into Afghanistan? Yes. He had been, bin Laden had been for, since uh, the middle of 1997, publicly trying to humiliate us, goad us into coming into Afghanistan. He blew up the embassies in East Africa, in, in Kenya and in Tanzania, for example, believing that we would react by coming to Afghanistan. We didn't. Uh, he thought for sure that he had lured us into Afghanistan when they almost sunk the U.S. Uh, coal in 2000. And it finally took 9-11 uh, to get him to come to get the Americans to come into Afghanistan, where he believed we would ultimately be defeated by the by the Afghans themselves, and unfortunately, that seems to be how things are shaping up at the moment. And do you think we should have gone? We certainly should have gone to Afghanistan. We needed to respond to a, a deadly attack on our country, but we should have gone there for a, a short period to destroy as much of the Taliban and Al Qaeda as we could, and then leave with the full knowledge that we might have to come back again and do the job a second time. But the problem we face now is we didn't kill as much of the Taliban and al-Qaeda as we could. Most of them escaped. And now we're mired in a country that uh, we don't have enough troops to operate in. And we're trying to impose on uh, the Afghans a culture, a secular democracy that they will fight to the death because uh, they, they, they don't see any reason for a separation between church and state. So it's a very difficult situation, and I, it seems like we're going to come out on the losing end of it. What do you think is our best move from this point on? I think we're really at the drawing board. If, we're, if we want first moves, I think that uh, the truth is always a good place to start. 
I think we need a politician in one of the parties, maybe both of the parties, make it a bilateral effort that stands up and tells Americans that, you know, this is really not about women in the workplace, and it's not about primaries in Iowa, and it's not about beer. It's about our foreign policy. Take a look, if you will, at what we wrote in the biography of bin Laden and see if there's any connection between these, this hobgoblin who hates uh, freedom and the real substantive leader who is focusing the Muslim world on U.S. foreign policy. Now, you are actually the first head of the CIA's bin Laden unit. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I was the, I was the chief from late 95 until the middle of uh, 99. And I was a very fortunate guy. I was the first one, and, and all of my successors have had a harder job. Bin Laden at the time was very much on a learning curve. Uh, he was not a professional terrorist insurgent, call him what you, what, what you would like, whatever term you would like to use. And he was very predictable in his movements. And so I, I was very honored to lead a bunch of officers who gave the Clinton administration at least 10 chances to um, uh, kill or capture bin Laden. In fact, between May of 1998 and May of 1999, um, the administration had uh, two chances to try to kidnap him using the CIA's assets and eight chances to kill him using the U.S. military's air power. And we chose not to do it. Why? Um, Americans, I think, at this point in time still... Uh, th they think a little bit in terms of the Cold War, that real threats to the United States come from nation states. We're very concerned about Iran now, for example, and we're very concerned about Russia and China, and rightfully so. But we have had a hard time appreciating that non-nation states, what they call transnational groups, can be a very dangerous threat to the United States. Al-Qaeda falls into that category, and um, we still have people in the government who think 9-11 was one-off and it can't happen again. And I think they're mistaken. But I, I really do think that we still suffer from kind of a Cold War hangover, that we're still looking for our enemies only in nation states and haven't really appreciated the threat emanating from uh, transnational actors. And you just said, you know, some people see 9-11 as a one-off type of thing. Um, what are the chances, you think, of us seeing another attack? I, th I think we haven't been attacked uh, as in 9-11 or worse because they haven't wanted to. Um, bin Laden uh, has been very um, gracious in a way to us because he's given us the metric by which he measures progress. His goals for the United States are to help uh, world economic conditions push the United States toward bankruptcy. His second goal is to spread out U.S. military and intelligence forces uh, till they have no reserves and little flexibility. And third, to create as much political dissent in the United States as possible and to strip away our allies one by one if they can do it. So if I'm Osama bin Laden uh, a decade after 9-11 and I'm in Afghanistan, I have to be pretty happy with the progress, the progress that I made based on the metrics I established 15 years ago for measuring that progress. So basically, at this point, attack isn't even necessary. I think that's exactly right. I think they're, they're, they're so surprised with the amount of progress they've made since 9-11.
in, in terms of their own metric, that they're afraid a big attack would uh, regalvanize the American people in support of their government and make the war start all over again. So I think they're very happy to sort of bleed us to death with a thousand cuts. What is bin Laden's ideal world? You know, I, I think his ideal world, um, a lot of people talk about establishing a caliphate, which is a worldwide Islamic uh, organization. And I think bin Laden believes in that, but it's because God said that's what, the way, that's what would happen one day. I think he personally believes um, it is as likely as you or I waking up tomorrow morning to find that the whole world is loving thy neighbor and turning the other cheek. It's not very likely. His future goal, if you will, is to create a situation where government in the Muslim world is conducted solely on the basis of the Quran and the Sunnah, which is the sayings and the traditions of the Prophet. Uh, he has no apparent political ambition himself, indeed has encouraged Muslims to gather and begin to talk about how to form these governments after the tyrannies that govern Saudi Arabia, Jordan, or Egypt have fallen. So I, I think uh, when people say they don't know what they would do if they were going to govern, or if, they, if they had the opportunity to govern, I think that's exactly wrong. Um, for the Islamists, the Quran and the Sunnah are their constitution and federalist papers. We may not like it, but th that's their founding documents. Earlier you discussed that we did miss an opportunity to get him. And I, am I correct in saying that then his tactics were a bit more rudimentary? Now do you think that it's going to be all the more difficult to capture him? And how high is that on our priority list right now? I, th I think that he has become much savvier. He is also living amongst uh, Afghans who regard him as a hero or who have accepted him as a guest, and uh, the Afghans guard their guests with their lives once they're accepted. I, I, th I think he's a much harder target than when I had the chance to chase him, for example. In so far as will we get him, I think there are some people in the U.S. military and the intelligence community working very hard to get him, but we are so dramatically undermanned in Afghanistan. We have 100,000 soldiers, um, if the media is right, uh, one, of three, one, one in three are combat soldiers. So we have 33,000 combat soldiers in a country that's bigger than Texas. And they have to keep Mr. Karzai in power, build a democracy, rebuild the economy, build a transportation and communications infrastructure, defeat the Taliban, and eradicate the heroin industry, and in their spare time go after Osama bin Laden. So. It's a very tall order for our men and women. I think uh, that America's service people in Afghanistan have really been given a dirty deal because there's not nearly enough of them to do any of those jobs. So I, my own expectation is, uh, although it's very possible, sometimes when you work very hard, you get lucky. We may kill him. Uh, but I suspect it's more likely he'll die from disease or old age before we get him. And I guess um, to wrap things up, I'm, I don't know if you can talk about this, but I'm really curious to hear more about your experiences as part of that first uh, bin Laden unit. Like, what does a day-to-day -day look like? You know, I was, it's, uh, the CIA, like most organizations, is quite bureaucratic, but we had a, a mandate from the director of central intelligence that put us directly in his chain of command, so we had a little bit more freedom of operation. I had an extraordinary collection of officers. I had 24 officers when I, when I left the position. 
And one of the things that I was not astounded, but surprised to find, I had 17 women out of 24 officers, and women are extraordinary at counterterrorism. Why is that? I, I, they're very good at relationships, understanding relationships, understanding connections between different people. And I think like the Union General uh, Sheridan, I find that women are very fierce and they were very aggressive in going after Osama bin Laden. And uh, uh, President Clinton was given 10 opportunities by women primarily to, to kill bin Laden in 1998 and 1999. Uh, the day-to-day work was very long. Uh, One thing I think people don't think of too often is when you're in the United States, the Middle East is nine hours or 10 hours ahead of you. So you end up working uh, 12, 14, 18 hours a day. A lot of people work themselves into sicknesses or divorces and things like that. So it takes a toll. Uh, But um, it was a very exciting time. The agency is a wonderful place to work because it is immediately important to the United States. And although very bureaucratic, much less bureaucratic than any other governmental agency. So I was, I was really privileged to uh, lead that group. And I really, all I really did was stop the, the bad stuff coming downhill so it didn't hit them. That's all. I think we all have, uh, thanks to film and Hollywood, we have an idea of what the CIA yeah. is. I'm just curious how accurate that is. <laughs> you know, Hollywood, the Hollywood version is one of the reasons the agency gets so much criticism. Uh, Hollywood does miracle things. Uh, they, they predict things to the second that are going to happen. Intelligence work is more or less uh, uh, an art. It's not a science. Mr. Obama, for example, is criticizing the intelligence agency for not telling him that Tunisia was going to fall apart, for example. Well, we've been reporting over the last 20 years that all of these Arab dictatorships were on the knife's edge, that they would stay in power until the people were thoroughly fed up and then there would be a problem. Um, I think the only intelligence failure on this business in the Middle East at the moment is perhaps, or certainly, we couldn't predict the the day that the man was going to immolate himself in Tunisia. There's no way to collect that kind of information. But I, I, generally speaking, I think the intelligence community does, does a good job. Uh, but it's not Hollywood. It's not uh, uh, James Bond. It's, there's some very good technical things. There's some very good people. But it's not uh, the swashbuckling kind of thing that you see in Hollywood. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss your new book. I don't know when I'll get to speak to someone who has been in the CIA again, so I really appreciate you coming in and answering all my questions. Thank you very much for having me. Come on, baby.